please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin in verse 1. If you're using the the Bible in the back of the pew there, uh, this is page 831 or 832, somewhere right around there. Matthew 26, so you're looking for the big, the big number there, 26, and we'll begin right there in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What would you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, as we begin our journey towards the cross with Jesus, help us to see the things you want us to see in this gospel. Lord, I pray most of all that we would treasure Christ more dearly as we see exactly who he is. And Lord, as we examine this morning these three evaluations of Christ, would you help us to assess ourselves rightfully? Would you help us to aspire to the one who treasured Christ? This is in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I prayed, we are entering now. Uh, into Jesus' final approach to the cross. The entire gospel has been moving. I think I lost. There we go. The, the entire gospel has been moving in this direction towards the cross, and, and Jesus' teaching is now finished. And here's what I want you to see as our introduction to this final stage of the gospel. Jesus is in total control of the situation here. From here on out, and really the whole gospel has been this way, but especially from here on out, nothing happens to Jesus that he does not allow to happen to him. 
Nothing comes as a surprise. Nothing happens to him that God does not ordain. We see that right here at the beginning, beginning in verses 1 and 2. After he'd finished all this teaching, and that's talking about all these other sermons that Jesus has preached. Those are finished. The teaching phase of ministry is over. Now it's time to finish the work. After his teachings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Which Son of Man is he talking about? We should probably know by now, right? The one that we read about last week. The, the Son of Man who will come in glory to judge the earth. That Son of Man must first be judged by the world and delivered over to be crucified. But that Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus, knows this is coming. He is in control of his circumstances. And Matthew makes a point to show us that Jesus predicts his death before verse 3. So in verse 3, you have that conspiracy to kill him. That's beginning to ramp up. And you see that at the beginning of verse 3. Look at it with me there. Then, that word then at the beginning of verse 3 helps us to see that this conspiracy happens after Jesus has predicted his death. Jesus tells his disciples when his death will be on the Passover, and then, after that, the religious leaders have their meeting. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows how he's going to die. He knows when he's going to die. It's his mission. He's been saying that he was going to die for the past 10 chapters, hasn't he? And the reason the Bible is so painstakingly clear on this point is that God is showing us in Scripture that Jesus' death was always a part of God's plan. The crucifixion that is coming was not something that happened to Jesus. It was not some unforeseen injustice. Despite what some theologians say, Jesus is not a victim of oppression by the ruling class. Jesus' death was always a part of the plan. It was, a, it was a part of the plan all the way, go all the way back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned and God covered them with the skin of an animal. Jesus' death was a part of God's plan. When God first compelled Abraham to offer up Isaac, but then substituted a ram in his place. Jesus' death was a part of God's plan when Joseph's Joseph's brothers conspired against him to kill him, and he was betrayed by his brothers into slavery. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you remember that story? It was pointing us forward to the death of Christ. Jesus' death was a part of God's plan when the blood of the sacrificial lamb painted over the threshold of the Israelite homes in Egypt protected them from the wrath of God, and God passed over them and spared them and gave them life. And Jesus' death was a part of God's plan when David wrote psalm after psalm after psalm about the anointed one of the Lord who suffered. And when Isaiah prophesied about the suffering and the saving servant, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' death, not an accident. His death has been foreshadowed again 
and again in the Old Testament and in history and in prophecy and in song in order to prepare God's people for the day that their Redeemer and the bringer of God's kingdom would die for them. The death of this anointed king has always, 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 from before time began, been a part of God's plan. God is not and has never been the victim. He's not the victim of circumstances. He's not the victim of conspiracy. He's not the victim of oppression. God is sovereign over all. Proverbs 21.1 says, so, he's so sovereign that the, the hearts of kings are like streams of water in his hand as he moves and directs history. Psalm 2.4 says, he who sits in heaven laughs at the plans of the conspirators. Psalmist says, the Lord holds the scheming of man in derision. God is so sovereign that he orchestrated his own death. And that's what Matthew is aiming at here at the beginning of our march towards the cross. That's what he's been showing us throughout the gospel. Jesus knows that he will be crucified. And he knows that he will be crucified during, do you look at, see that in verse 2? During the Passover feasts, because that will fulfill what took place at the first Passover. And Jesus knows his death will happen during the Passover when even the elders and the priests who are going to kill him are trying to avoid it happening on the Passover. You see that? In verse 2, Jesus says this will happen on the Passover, but then look at verse 5, as the elders and priests who are conspiring to kill him say, it must not happen on that day. Not. It must not happen during the feast. This is a reminder to us at the very beginning of this passion sequence. Jesus is king. God is sovereign. King Jesus' will is the will that rules. And what God ordains to happen, happens. The Lord is in total control of the situation. And the religious leaders are willful, guilty participants in it. Think of Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give. What does that word give imply? A willful, strategic, intentional sacrifice. He's giving his life. Nobody takes it. He's giving his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Same thing in John 10. John 10, verses 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see it? That the, the cross is Jesus' mission, and Jesus always accomplishes his mission. See the destined day arise, see the willing sacrifice. So as we enter chapters 26 and 27, I really want you to keep that in mind, okay? That is the framework, the, the foundation 
two different metaphors here, that, that Matthew is setting up here for us, through which we are to read the rest of this book. Passion of the Christ is God's mission. The question for us this morning, that's your introduction, that the question this morning is as it has been throughout Matthew's gospel. How will we respond? And more, more specifically in this morning's text, how will we value Christ? What is Messiah worth? We have three groups in our text this morning. You might have seen, you might have kind of already felt the difference between the three. Three groups in our text to help us explore that question of what is Messiah worth. The religious leaders here in the first section, Judas in the third, and then right in the middle, given the most attention by Matthew, is this unnamed woman. And that's how we're going to divide this up. We're going to start with the first section, go to the second, and go to the third. Matthew has given us what I call a, a, a discipleship sandwich, and we're going to eat it and savor what's in the middle. All right? So that's the point of this, and, and we're going to start here with these religious leaders in verses 3 through 5. How does each of these parties evaluate Christ? What is his worth? So in, in, in these religious leaders, in verse 3, you have the, the chief priests and the elders of the people. And they're all gathered together in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. And Matthew tells us why they've all gathered there. Look at verse 4. They've gathered there to plot together, to conspire, to together come, what, come up with a, a master plan to secretly capture Jesus and then have him killed. This is certainly, as I've already hinted at, an echo of Joseph's brothers in Genesis. If you remember that story of Joseph who had, had the dream that he would rule over his brothers? They didn't like that. Genesis 37, 18, when his brothers saw him coming from afar, and before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Almost exactly what Matthew says is happening to Jesus, isn't it? It's also a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 2. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's also a fulfillment of Psalm 31. Psalm 31, 13, the rulers whisper together, conspiring against the Lord's anointed. But in all of those stories throughout the Old Testament, in all of the songs, the conspiracies against God's chosen one always prove to be futile efforts, don't they? And it seems like these religious leaders who know their Bibles very well would know their own history, but they don't. And their plotting together reveals their ignorance here in verse 4. And their plan is to secretly capture Jesus. Why secretly? Well, look at verse 5. Lest there be an uproar among the people. So you have all these, let me just give the setting for you. This is Passover week. You have people who have come from thousands of, or thousands of people who have come from many, many miles, and they're all gathering there in Jerusalem for Passover, one of the most important Jewish holidays of the year. And these religious leaders don't want to cause trouble. They've seen what happens when you cause trouble. When all these people are, are there, they know that, that Rome does not respond well to that. Uh, they also 
don't want trouble to come onto them as a result of their plot to kill Jesus. So to these leaders, Jesus isn't worth the trouble. They want to kill him. That's very clear. But not if that means putting their own lives at risk. Not if that means putting their reputations at risk. Jesus is not worth that. So on that question of what is Jesus worth, well, at this point, for them, he's not worth a riot. He's not worth their own lives. Because for these men, Jesus is just an annoying inconvenience that must be silenced. If you're not a Christ follower, and I know some of you here, maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been coming a long time and you're not following Christ and you know that, I want you to think about this for a moment. If Jesus is not worth following wholeheartedly, what is he to you? Is he an inconvenience? Does it sort of annoy you that he demands this full allegiance? And that gets in the way of the life that you would rather live? And does that annoyance make you want to silence him? Does the annoyance of Jesus lead you to do and make whatever excuse you can come up with to not hear him? I don't have time for this. I don't have time for church. I, don't, I have this going on. I don't have time to read my Bible. I have this going on. I don't have time to devote myself to that discipleship group because I have this other thing going on. I, Jesus is an annoyance. I don't hate him enough to blaspheme him in front of everyone, but I certainly don't want to follow him. Friends, that desire to silence Jesus That is at the heart of the religious leader's response here. It is a hatred of Jesus that stems from unbelief. And if that's your heart this morning, I would invite you to repent and follow instead of these guys the example of this woman in Bethany. Let me tell you about her. This second example of Jesus' worth comes to us from this woman in Bethany. Bethany is, is a as a village right outside of Jerusalem. So if you were going away from Jerusalem and you went past the Mount of Olives, the next place you would come to was Bethany. And while Jesus is there, he visits the home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know who this man is. He isn't mentioned anywhere else. It's highly unlikely that he's actually still suffering from leprosy. It would, it would be a violation of the law for any of these people to be in his home. That's something that Jesus we've seen do, but others wouldn't be there. So it's more likely that he's recovered from leprosy, possibly, we'll know, this is total speculation, okay, speculation, parentheses time, it's possible that he had previously been healed by Jesus. Regardless, though, Jesus is at Simon's house for a meal. He's reclined at table, Matthew tells us, which is how they ate. They would sit at the table chairs, they would lean on pillows uh, to, to eat this way. And normally what happens in these situations is someone, a servant in the home, would, would come and dab oil 
on the head of the guests. So, so it was an act that showed honor to the guest. All right? So not pour oil, but a, a, a dab of oil on their heads to show honor to them. That was a part of what it meant to be hospitable to those in your home. Well, this woman, in Matthew, you, you, you notice he makes a point out of not naming her. She goes far and above that normal welcoming ritual. She breaks open an entire jar of what Matthew says is a very expensive oil, a precious, precious perfumed oil. And she doesn't just dab it on his head with a little bit like a normal person would. Verse 7 says she poured it on him. Her actions, as Jesus shows us later, they're more akin to some, how someone would prepare the dead for burial. Her pouring of this oil onto Jesus is so extravagant, so outrageously excessive, that disciples become angry at her. Look what they say. Why this waste? What are, you, what are you doing it wrong? Why are you doing this? Why are you wasting all of this on Jesus? It just needs a little bit. Don't pour out the most valuable thing you have on him. And do you, do you hear the undertone from the disciples? He's not worth it. He's not worth all of this. What happens next is interesting. In verse 9, the disciples say, why? Why it's not worth it? They're coming up with some pragmatic reason for why don't do this to Jesus. This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Now, if, if you... If you've been with us the whole time as we've worked our way through Matthew, and you've listened to Jesus' teaching about wealth, we kind of don't blame them for thinking that way. Right? Think especially about the rich young man in, back in chapter 19. Comes to Jesus, wondering what deed he must do to have eternal life. Do you remember this guy? Jesus tells him, obey the law. He says, I do. Jesus sees into the man's heart, and he sees that this man loves his wealth more than the Lord. And Jesus tells him, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. That follow me part is really key to this instruction. What he's telling the man is get rid of the idol that you are treasuring above all else and come trust in me and worship me instead. And it could be that all the disciples remembered from that Time was that line, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. You have to remember, in their minds, they're following a Jewish rabbi, a teacher. He's been teaching them Jewish law. Jesus was a teacher of the law, and they've contrived from his instruction to that man inquiring about the law that when you have wealth, you must give it to the poor to follow Jesus. See the exchange that they've made in their minds? They had only heard the instruction, but had not understood the heart behind it. And brothers and sisters, that is the definition of legalism, isn't it? In the minds of the disciples, following Jesus is a very clean-cut, legalistic thing. If this lady wants to be a disciple of Jesus, she must sell all that she has and give it to the poor. That's not what Jesus was teaching. 
It never was what Jesus was teaching, not even to the rich man. With the rich man, Jesus was pointing that man to himself, to Jesus. He was teaching the man to treasure, to hold infinitely valuable, the only thing worth treasuring, Jesus himself. And the reason this woman is praised and not condemned for this reckless extravagance was because it showed that she was totally devoted to Christ, that she was treasuring Christ. Possibly one of her most treasured possessions has been poured out on him. And look what Jesus says in response to the disciples' anger. Look at verse 10. Trying to show them this is not a waste. Guys, you're missing this. She's not wasting this. She has done a beautiful thing to me. What she has done is beautiful. It is admirable. It is exemplary. So exemplary, in fact, look down to verse 13. He says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. We have in, in the gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read the book of Acts, we have positive examples of faith, positive examples of devotion to Christ. And we also have negative examples. There's quite a few of those. Even in our text this morning, we have both. This woman has made it, Jesus says, into the hall of fame as a positive example of, of what it means to follow Christ. And, and what's interesting is that even while Matthew records Jesus' words that she will be remembered forever, and she is, Matthew doesn't give us her name, does he? I find that really fascinating. Jesus says she'll be remembered for as long as the gospel is being proclaimed. And here we are, 2,000 years later, remembering her. We're looking to her as an, as an example of what it means to follow Jesus, a hero of the faith. But we don't know her name. Now, if we look to John's gospel, John says, well, this was Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. But for John, the way that John tells his gospel account, Mary has already been an integral part of of that story. She's a part of the story that is, would be foolish for John to, to forget about or to not name. She helps the story move along. Matthew, though, doesn't give us that information. He doesn't tell us her name, and there's a reason why. Matthew wants us to see this woman was just like the unnamed centurion who trusted in Jesus, and the unnamed blind men, and the paralyzed man and his friends who let him down, and, and the, the bleeding woman, and the Canaanite woman whose daughter was healed. All of these examples that Matthew has showed us of true faith, all of these examples of true faith lived out by unnamed men and women. And you, why Matthew does that? It's because he wants us to be absolutely sure that the focus is on Jesus and not these individuals. The truth that they had, the faith that they had, it came from God. And it was directed toward Jesus. They were like conduits. The gospel is about Jesus. We aren't building statues of these men and women. We don't pray to these men and women. Because what they're famous for is not in them. They're famous for their being needful of Christ. And devoted to Christ. This woman in Bethany 
exemplified true devotion to Christ. And we are to follow her faith and her devotion because that will lead us not to her, but to Christ. So, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, be known for your devotion to Jesus and let your name be forgotten. Let his name be the name that you're remembered for. In just a few generations, your name will be forgotten by your family. Okay? I like to tell you hard truths. I don't know my great-great-grandparents' names. And some of you might. You family tree type people, maybe you do. But most of us don't know our great-great-grandparents' names. And many of us will be in that position. People whose names we don't know, that our descendants don't know. But listen, if you are encouraging your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren in the faith now, if you are leading by example a life of devotion to Christ, you know what will happen? That legacy will live on. And while your name will be forgotten, Christ's name will be remembered in your family. May it be that all of our names will be forgotten. But may Christ be made known through our lives. Amen? Amen. Before we move on uh, to this next section, we have to address something else. Sometimes in Scripture you have passages that are misused. And um, may that never be for our church. So there's something we have to address here about what Jesus said in verse 11. Now these disciples are upset because this woman could have sold the oil and give it to the poor. And, and look at Jesus' response in verse 11. He says, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And as we were talking about this passage as pastors this week, Josh pointed out the way that this is sometimes misused, and I think he's right. We need to make sure that we as a church understand this. This verse is not a proof text for ignoring the needs of the poor. Sometimes we make this bizarre deduction that because Jesus said there would always be poor people, therefore poverty will never be solved, therefore there's no point in giving to the poor. That is not what Jesus means, okay? What's happening here, and this is, this is not just my opinion that that's not what Jesus means, this is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy here, all right? So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, and let me read for you this passage that he is referring to. He says, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And look at verse 11. 
for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to the Lord, to the needy, or to open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. That verse 11 is key, isn't it? Because there will always be poor in the land. That's almost identical to what Jesus is saying. And I, I firmly believe this is what Jesus is referring to. Because there will always be poor in the land, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor. What, what, what God is teaching is that you should, you should always have a heart of generosity and open hands towards those who are in need because there will always be the poor and you will always have ample opportunities to be merciful and generous towards them. In other hands, your hand or words, your hand's always going to be open in this life. This is a command, obviously, for Old Testament Israel, right? This is Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. But God's heart behind it extends to us. There is an expectation that God's people would have compassion on those in need and would be quick to help those in need. Because our our true belonging, our hope, our security, our eternity, our treasure is secure in heaven, isn't it? So we're not afraid to be generous here. Never afraid to be generous here on earth. Because we know that all that God has entrusted to us is meant to be used for his glory. So, Jesus is not saying, mark this down. You are just a, I mean, I'm a capitalist too, but if you just use this one as your capitalism proof text, don't. Jesus is not saying, poverty will never be solved, so let's ignore the poor. What Jesus is saying is you can care for the poor tomorrow. They'll still be here. You'll still be the people of God tomorrow. The poor will still be here for you to serve tomorrow. But today, this is the last time you can serve me. So this woman is right. This woman is right to give so extravagantly to Christ on that day. So what is Jesus worth? Well, to this woman... He's worth your prized possessions poured out lavishly on him. He's worth losing your name for. He's worth being called a fool. Our third picture of the worth of Christ is here in verses 14 through 16. And this, if you've been tracking with Matthew, this is actually only the second time in Matthew's gospel that this man, Judas Iscariot, has been mentioned. We saw him introduced way back in chapter 10 when Matthew introduced all 12 of the disciples who would follow Jesus. And when he introduced Judas, he told us the last one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we know this is coming. We know this story. This passage comes as no surprise to us as we're reading it. And yet here we are in that moment when the betrayal happens. Judas sneaks away from that meal that they're having together. He goes to the men he knows want to see Jesus silenced. And he asks that deadly question. Look at verse 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What's Jesus worth to you? Kind of the opposite way that we're asking it though, isn't it? You see Judas's willingness here? He's already presenting a 
very much a willingness to betray the Lord. And he's doing it because he smells a business opportunity. So think of, think of what's happening here. Judas has been with Jesus. He has heard him say over and over again, I'm going to die. And so Judas is thinking, oh, Jesus keeps saying he's going to die. I thought he was the Messiah. Must not be. Maybe I can make a profit from it. This is what is known in the, ins- in the finance world as insider trading. Right? He knows something that gives him a market that others don't have. The, the one who, Jesus, who Judas followed, thinking he would be king, has shown himself to be worthless in Judas' eyes. So he's going to sell him while the market's hot. Look at what they offer Judas. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. That is not an insignificant number. If it were insignificant, Matthew would have said a bag of silver or a measure of silver or some money. But Matthew is intentional in telling us the exact amount. And there's a reason for this. It starts way back in Exodus, Moral Testament, yes. It starts way back in Exodus when the law is given to God's people. And, and the law is very extensive. If, you've, if you're reading through the Bible and you get to Exodus, you see... Laws that you didn't expect. There are a number of these what-to-do-if types of laws. In Exodus chapter 21, there's a fairly long paragraph given about what to do if you have an out-of-control ox. So if you have an ox that gores someone to death, the law says the ox has to die. But the owner isn't liable. He owes no one any damages. It was an accident. But... But if it turns out that someone has an ox that has gored someone in the past, and that person knows that this is a dangerous ox, and and that ox has not been killed as the law has said that it should be, and then if that dangerous ox kills someone again or maims someone again, well, according to the law, the owner of that dangerous ox is now liable. Right? So he, he... negligently, knowingly, allowed this to happen again. And if that ox kills someone's slave, the law tells us, the owner of the ox owes the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver. So a slave, according to the old Jewish law, is worth about 30 pieces of silver. But this 30 pieces evaluation shows up again. We saw it this morning in Zechariah, didn't we? And most of us reading that passage had no idea what was going on, so I'm going to summarize it. In Zechariah 11, Zechariah the prophet, he's a prophet, he's an exilic prophet, so he's he's after the exile. He, He says he is a shepherd. Zechariah is a shepherd who has been given charge over a flock of sheep. And the sheep in the in the Prophecy is the people of God. So while his shepherding of the his, his shepherding of them, it turns out is a bit of a, a lost cause, right? Do you remember that line in Zechariah eleven where it says that, that they were doomed for slaughter? It's a lost cause. These these sheep are are going to be destroyed, and the reason for that is because the leaders of Israel or the owners of the flock they have been treating the sheep horribly, and 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 they won't let the shepherd do his work. 
and the sheep themselves are stiff-necked, and they won't let the shepherd do his work. Add to that, they won't follow the shepherd. The the sheep won't. So the shepherd gets angry. He breaks his staff called favor or grace. And then the the, the flock and the leaders reject the shepherd altogether. So they're kind of around him at least. He breaks that covenant with them and they reject him altogether. And so the, the shepherd goes to the owners of the flock to receive the wages for the time that he was with them. And what is Zechariah the shepherd's pay? 30 pieces of silver. So let me summarize it. The one who had been given charge over the flock of God was rejected by the flock and by their owners, and he was paid according to his worth. 30 pieces of silver. The worth of a slave. We're going to see another connection to this in chapter 27. But for now, Matthew's pointing our attention to that number. The significant in, in, in biblical theology, and biblical history. To, to Judas and to the religious leaders, the good shepherd whom God himself had put in charge of the flock, well, he's worth about 30 pieces of silver. He has the same value as a slave, the same value as Zechariah, the rejected shepherd. These religious leaders were willing to pay about what they would have paid for a slave. And Judas was willing to accept about that much. To betray Jesus. So what is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth your trouble? Is he worth more than a servant? Will you give everything to show your devotion to him? Is he worth that? Will you seize every opportunity to honor him? As we look to this woman's example, I recognize, and I was thinking about it this week, none of us are going to have an opportunity or the privilege to prepare Jesus for burial. That's never going to happen again. Praise God. But we can follow her example of wholehearted devotion to Christ, even when that means being thought of as foolish to others. And I am not one to tell you how to do this. That's not my job. This woman had a flask of oil that no one else had. Only she could pour out that gift, that precious gift onto Christ. But all of us, each one of you, has unique ways where you can love Christ extravagantly foolishly, wastefully. I know a businessman I went to school with, skilled in his work, he had ample opportunity to advance more and more in his company in the United States, but he left it. He left it behind to make a whole lot less money, to serve Christ somewhere far less comfortable What a waste, right? Or think of Anna. I don't know if you remember her. She was an encouragement to a number of us. Young, single, medical professional. She was with us just a short time. She poured out her career for Christ's sake. 
Now where is she? She's struggling to learn a new language in North Africa. So Christ would be made known among Muslim people. What a waste of a career in the eyes of the world. But what a precious pouring out. Think of the young mother. Gets her college degree, ready to take on the world. She gets married, has kids, and then stays home with them to raise them and disciple them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What a waste of talent in the eyes of the world. Think of those, and many of you know people like this. Maybe it's you. Think of those living far below their means in order to vote their excess to Christ. To devote their wealth to the glory of Christ. What a waste in the eyes of the world. But what a beautiful thing. I don't know what alabaster flask of oil that you have. I don't know what you have to devote to Christ wholeheartedly and foolishly and wastefully. But I do know this. This is what Jesus wants us to see here. To love Christ means to be extravagantly and radically and lavishly devoted to him. Even at the risk of your reputation here on earth. Even at the risk of being called foolish by the world and possibly by other Christians. If there's anything that we have learned so far in Matthew, we've learned this. There's no such thing as half-hearted devotion to Christ. The longer you follow Christ, the more you will find that following him further, the next step will cost you a great deal. It may cost you everything. Is he worth it? He is. Let's pray and ask him to show 